millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you not entertained? Hello and welcome to History in Technicolor with me, Wolf O'Neill, and... Me, David Crowther. Welcome, David. Thank you, Wolf. It's lovely to be here. And why are we here today? Well, apparently we're going to talk about true crime or something, even though it's, a, even though it's called history mm. in Technicolor, not true crime in Technicolor. Well, I'm going to attempt to and possibly fail to suggest that true crime is history. I'm being adversarial and I'd like to formally apologise and withdraw my opening statement. I welcome, I welcome that um, because I think... I think we get something we're going to have to talk about throughout, and if we don't, the listeners will. Okay, let's talk about it, Wolf. Okay, so today uh, we're going to be doing the 1967 film In Cold Blood, which is an adaptation of the Truman Capote true crime novel of the same name that was released in installments for The New Yorker starting in September 1965 and then came out as a novel in '66. Uh, the film and the book recount the story of the brutal murder of the Clutter family in Kansas in 1959, as well as the subsequent investigation. Um, I selected this because I wanted to fill in a gap in my own cultural knowledge, kind of make amends, um, because I've left this book on my shelf unread for over a decade. Um, it might still remain unread, but maybe after this I will finally pick it up. Uh, the film is critically acclaimed. Um, and when I was kind of doing a lot of uh, research for this in general, it kept cropping up on a lot of lists. So I thought I would uh, give it a shot. And I thought it might be a little bit different, a little bit controversial. And I wanted to ask you again about who owns history. Yes, that'll be a good discussion. Let's hope. <laughs> so um, to get us started, because it's been a long time since our very first episode. It's true, which was also true crime. Mm-hmm. I wanted to clarify with you what your feelings on true crime are. Right. Okay. Well, I have a sort of a mixed relationship with true crime. It's kind of basically hate-hate 
relationship. Mm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, no, I'm putting it too strong. I kind of understand the appeal of true crime. And indeed, on telly, to be honest, we watch all kinds of detective dramas, although not true crime by and large, actually. So I never watch those things of, you know, 12 killers, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Essentially, I watch that. So, <laughs> there are loads of them on the telly. I mean, again, it's like, you know, it's coming out of your ears, like more true crime things than flies on a... Well, anyway, moving on. So... Mm-hmm. The thing I get slightly puritanical about is that I really dislike true crime where people in the immediate family are still alive. It just seems prurient and incredibly insensitive for people to be talking about these hideous events when there are still people around who can get hurt by what somebody might say. Uh, So I really dislike that. When you're talking about, I don't know, Mr. and Mrs. Twitch or whatever it was, Mr. Witcher, that book, then, okay, fair enough, because there's nobody around anymore. I don't know if there's anybody around of the Clutter family. I guess not. Nobody's mentioned it. Are they? I don't know. No. Maybe it's long enough ago. I don't know. It's only six, seven. Anyway, that is my thing about true crime. I kind of understand the appeal. It's got, you know, this, the worst, worst kind of, crime it's got human interest it's got detective and discovery and all that so i understand the elements but by and large actually it doesn't do it for me like love the crime thing don't love the true bit okay and then i guess going on from that um is true crime and i guess specifically this film historical in your opinion or am i a cheater for selecting it. Well, clearly you're a vile cheater for selecting it. No, I think it's legit. So, because it is history. I mean, it's stretching a point, but of course these things happened. And it is very interesting to see how they get re-presented and re-represented in, in film. Uh, it's not what I thought about when I thought, let's do a historical, when we said together, let's do a, a history, mm. film and history podcast. But then... I don't think it's any more cheating than doing something like, say, Master and Commander, which, you know, clearly didn't happen, but was set in a historical world or indeed, you know, other stuff. So, you know, I, I don't I don't feel strongly that, hey, you're you're a you're a vicious cheater. It's kind of fine. I wouldn't want to overdo it, though. No, um, this is not me. Can I have no interest to kind of delve into a lot of true crime and start doing this consistently. And in fact, it might not really happen again. I was just so interested in what you had been saying about who owns history. Yeah. And I thought that this might give us some some kind of talking points that would add into that idea. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, actually. I mean, it's very interesting from that respect, I think. And I, I also think it's important to keep changing it up. It's easy to kind of do a lot of similar films. Yes. Um, and dealing with this kind of similar history. And I thought, let's look at something different. I do think that it's, while it's not a lot of time, um, eight years passes from the events of the story to when the film comes out. Oh, is that right? Um, it's only that long. Yes. But it's not as, when I read that the book was 66 and the film was 67, I was like, oh, that's no time at all but the murders were in 59. So, okay. Um, I just think it's a, 
I guess we're gonna we'll talk about this later, but the way that it operates has kind of um almost first hand kind of evidence of the time. Mm. I think it captures the kind of the zeitgeist of the moment and also contributes to it further. Um so it's it's like telling history but is also kind of part of the history that we look back on. And I just find that kind of meshing fascinating, as well as the kind of weird the kind of weird in-between space in which it embodies, where it is both unbelievably authentic and accurate, while being this transformative storytelling that elevates the kind of the story into something more. Maybe I'm not being clear, but yeah, I no, think I, it's... I understand. It's, it is an, at an interesting junction of the two things. Um, uh, personally, I must admit, having... A, having realized that because i was thinking look we're you know 40 years 50 years later so it's fine to do it now but of course yes you're quite right it came out at the time so i do disapprove um mm. i think but having said that in terms of a historical record it is very interesting and the way they do it i don't know if this is the right time to talk about that is very flat so in actual fact well, i was going to say this later but you don't I don't think you get a very strong personality of the police. You don't get a very strong personality mm. of the people. Everything about the personality development is about the two villains. So in a sense, it keeps it in a box and its style is quite academic. I mean, it's not obviously not academic, but it is quite trying very hard to be objective, trying hard to tell you what happened and why it happened not trying to pass moral judgments. So in that sense, it kind of forms part of a historical record. Hmm. No, very interesting. Yeah, I think it's just um, the more I started to learn about the impact that the the novel had at the time and how it kind of changed literature and true crime and, and all of this other stuff and kind of led us to where we are now and kind of how we perceive of this like genre um i thought that was fascinating and so kind of i guess it's like literary history but this moment in time seems to have been a turning point and i thought looking back on that would be would offer something as well what did you think of the film i really enjoyed it i didn't get very passionate about it so mm. you know the last film we discussed the favorite for example i found myself very engaged intellectually and it, kind of emotionally in it. You know, I, it was an experience. Here, I felt I was watching an old movie because I kind of was watching an old movie. And I don't know that I would have watched it. I'm pretty sure I haven't watched it if you hadn't beat me. Mm. So okay, yes, I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. Jane watched it with me as well. She She enjoyed it. And I'm sure if I knew more about film as you do, and indeed the book, that I would recognise its interesting points <coughs> and maybe be able to uh, talk about that a bit more. But being a bit of an ignoramus, mm. you know, it, it was great. It was fine. I enjoyed the evening, enjoyed watching it. Don't I wouldn't go around saying to everybody, hey, got to see this film. Interesting. Um, that's at least still good, though, because I wasn't sure that you would enjoy it. Mm. So... We're, a, we're off to a great We're start. off to a winner. Great. Excellent. We're ahead. Okay. Some things that I liked about it. Okay. I loved the cinematography and the style of the film. I thought that 
the use of black and white was bold and haunting. I appreciated the confidence in the structure of the storytelling. Um, genuinely was surprised when they built towards the murder and then they cut away. And sometime later on in the movie, we looped back. And then again, I had so much time had passed that I couldn't believe, I just assumed we were never going to see it because it was an older movie possibly. And then when it looped back and then took us through the murder in detail, um, it was a gut punch. I thought it was very powerful. I thought it was very interesting. I thought Quincy Jones's score was incredible. I thought it was really good, really set the mood. And there was this fascinating bit where when they start collecting all the bottles um, from the car, I thought I started to hear bottles um, being incorporated into the music right. and into the score. And then I think I read that he used a lot of like found sounds um, to go with the soundtrack. And it just feels really innovative and engaged and present in the film, like part of the film speaking so loudly. And I was just really impressed that it was doing that. I thought the acting was very good. Um, and while I, I can't pretend that I was, um, I was blown away by the movie. I do think that it has had an impact. It did while I was watching it and then kind of through researching it, it has lingered in my mind and is a little bit more, is as complex as I kind of hoped it could be and is quite challenging. Uh, and there are a lot of nuances in the storytelling which are interesting to to kind of dwell on and analyze what is the, what is the viewpoint of this film? What is it trying to say? Um, what are the kind of, wider implications of making this film and releasing it at the time on a slightly counter note. I have very slight concerns that there is a kind of scaremongering quality to this film. Um, one of the quotes from the narration is mm. a violent unknown force destroys a decent ordinary family, no clues, no logic makes us all feel frightened, vulnerable. Yes, I can see that's a sort of yes. Yes, it is true. But isn't that part of the the whole thing about true crime and part of the reason I don't really like true crime very much? That it's all about, hey, this terrible, awful thing that happened. Da, da, da. And that's fine in a drama, but people's lives were ruined by this. Yes. Um, I think I think there are two sides to things, though. There is... I think you can learn from instances of, of crime happening. Like what can we learn about our society? What can we learn about this incident? How can you prevent this happening? How can you live your life differently, etc. Um, and I think that it can be narrowed and focused and doesn't have like wider implications. But I think that this fell, and maybe it's because the crime was so sensational. Maybe it did um caused this reckoning in society at the time but i feel like the film is playing into this idea that you are not safe at home anymore mm. not this happened and maybe people in this local area are a bit worried but like the american dream is shattered and you now need to start locking your doors when you didn't before um upward mobility for yourself means that others will now want to take from you 
um, that family home that you've like cultivated with the nice yard and the horses and the small business potential is a target. Mm. I just feel like the the book has obviously contributed to that. And I, I know that Capote wanted to um, kind of speak to a, a broader America and not just um, the Midwest or, mm. or Kansas. And it wasn't just a, a single incident. He wanted to critique and comment on like wider societal issues. And I just think the film is again, obviously not just copying from the book, but has its own, has its own viewpoint and um, goal. And I think one of those things is I list, I saw the, I listened to or watched the trailer for the film. Yeah. And there's kind of this, and this happens a lot with the historical accuracy in the film. There's this attempt to make it feel like you are watching a documentary and not a film. Yeah. And that the men that you are watching are not actors, but the actual murderers and that you are in the story with them, like a, a, a kind of a helpless um, voyeur or kind of a, a tragic onlooker. And you have to go through this experience of kind of physically seeing this like American dream get destroyed and you can't do anything about it because like it's coming for all of us. And I think by pushing authenticity to and realism to this extreme, it is it's doing something to scare audiences like around the mm. world and make them feel like it so for example there's the you could argue it's humanizing um and telling the story of the victims which is true and in the book it happened as well they start cutting between the lives of the killers and the uh the clutter family at home living their ordinary mm. lives and it's very clear that the tasks they're doing and kind of the way they're presented is like, that's your neighbor. That could be you. Yeah. Is that your daughter? Um, they aren't faceless individuals. They kind of represent um, small town America on this wide scale. And then there's a lot of focus on the, the little corner shop, the little gas station. Um, I think it's just, it's quite emblematic of a, a bigger story. I, I think it does in some ways a good job as far as that's concerned and in some ways i think maybe it's lacking so let me mm-hmm. so you do get a very real sense of this is very everyday and that this is a very senseless murder and i think that does play into the things you're talking about about saying hey nobody's safe this could happen to you and the sen- very senseless mechanical nature of it accentuates that as well i think it's interesting that the other thing that accentuates, I think, is that you're quite right that the Clutter family does appear and you know, this cutting happens and that's very, that's quite effective. But on the other hand, because of its flatness and its determination mm-hmm. not to create any dramatic emotional feel, I don't actually identify with the Clutter family. Mm-hmm. In that sense... It sells the Clutter family short. It hasn't really tried to make me think these are real people with real needs and real emotions. And if it was a drama, maybe it would do the Clutters a better service of saying here are people that really, you know, this terrible thing has happened to these people who did not deserve this. In a sense, and that, I guess, brings us back to the issue of you know, who owns history? Because historical novels, traditionally, help you fill in the gaps between history facts, the stuff you don't know, 
the stuff about emotion, inner thoughts, it helps you visualize, I don't know, Edward III as a, a real person. And this doesn't do that. And maybe that's not right for a family that's been so brutally dealt with. I agree. My counterpoint or kind of building off of that is that I think it's very fascinating the two characters it does do that for in immense detail is the two killers, um, Hickok and Blake, I think. Because normally I think you see the story from like the other perspective, but this film is, and the book as well, um, spends a lot of time filling in and based, I guess, on testimony as well as supposition, what those characters might have been thinking or feeling throughout the story of the film. And it presents them in... Actually, no, I'm going to ask you... I'm going to ask you that question now. Did you feel any sympathy or empathy for either of the two men? And how did you find kind of seeing everything from their perspective? I think it was a very good technique to show the thing from their perspective, or at least to a degree, in the sense that achieved what I think the film was trying to do of being quite flat and documentary and saying, look, this crime happened. Why did it happen? And not getting over emotional about that. So in the sense of a documentary feel, that kind of works quite well. It's a little bit trite. So, okay, so this guy had a terrible, you know, his, had a, his dad mm-hmm. was, was a bad man and he brought him up with all these dreams that he could never attain and therefore he went to achieve the you know he imagined he was entitled to the impossible the other guy hickok was completely senseless just yeah i i have felt no sympathy or whatsoever a worthless human human being who goes and kills people for no good reason other than greed so i didn't feel a lot of empathy it didn't really do a great job, so it kind of explained, but didn't make me feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was kind of I was kind of torn throughout as well because I could tell that things were being done in an attempt to make, especially Perry, um, a tragic and to an extent sympathetic character um, who desperately wanted help but never received it. Yes. Um, the tragedy is that he he often talks about how he kind of knew that he was always this person and he wished the prison had never let him go so that he couldn't do this. Um, we'll kind of do historical accuracy later, but I think in real life, Capote got very close to Perry. Mm. And of the two men, he was much closer to him and was able to kind of draw things out of him through this connection that the two the two men had. Yes. And I guess that must come across in the book and then that transfers into the film. Um, There's a line at the end of the film that says, four innocent and two guilty people murdered. And part of my research, I guess it comes across in the film quite clearly, but I was trying to figure out what its view on kind of corporal punishment and Mm. what should happen to these two men was, because I didn't think it was always clear. Um, I definitely did not feel bad for these two men but i also felt that the film was torn about whether they should or how they should be punished for what they have done 
and it did want to try and explain kind of maybe why they did the things that they did, um, which I thought was interesting, especially for the time. Yeah. I think what the, I think the thing that they, that was incredibly effective about the movie, given that I've been a bit damning so far is are those end scenes about the executions. I think they're incredibly effective. They don't, the, the lack of, the very lack of emotion heightens the complete inhumanity of capital punishment. And the process is just hideous. And the, mm. what going through that process must do, not just to the vic, to the, to the murderers, but to the people who have to carry out that kind of thing is hideous. And just, I think the film is very clear that it's saying capital punishment is wrong because yes. you've got these people who have done this terrible thing and without doubt deserve to be punished. But even they are not worthy of this thing that they go through. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that I was reading is that uh, Richard Brooks, the director, is possibly even more anti um, kind of capital punishment than Capote was. An interesting, like, odd fact. Um, so uh, I'm going to jump around a bit. So Capote was there for their execution, right? Um, as he was invited to be. Um, and he watched Hickok hang, which obviously I did not. I guess I maybe I knew it, but I'd forgotten that it takes like ten to fifteen minutes um, to die, which is obviously terrible. Um, but he couldn't watch Perry um, hang because he felt too close to him, and he had to like leave. But he also believed simultaneously that there shouldn't be Miranda rights, and shouldn't be what? Sorry, Miranda rights when you uh, you get to read. Uh, somebody their rights when you arrest them. Is that what they're called? Miranda rights? I didn't know that. You know, when they're like, uh, you have the right to remain silent, you yeah. have the right to an attorney. Um, Capote believed that we shouldn't do that. Really? And the, that? The, because he, he argued that if, because the evidence was um, quite slim and because this crime was so unusual that these two men would never have been caught or convicted, I think, they never would have been convicted if they had had, like, legal support and had just kind of not confessed. Um, but what essentially happened was the police just, like, start quizzing them, and they're on their own, and they just... they One of them gives it up, and then they just start talking. Mm. And they blab away, uh, reveal everything that happened, and then they're convicted because of it. Capozzi was like, if we, if we used these rights, these men, like, wouldn't have been well, potentially would not have gone down for what they did. And so it's very interesting kind of seeing how these individuals in the film and in real life are affected by going through this process of getting really close to these killers and then having to deal with kind of the consequences of that and kind of figuring out what we should be doing as a society. No, it's interesting. Do you have any other points that you wanted to raise about the kind of quality of the film and what it was doing? Yes. I mean, if there are other positive things to say so i love the style of it um we really enjoyed that i think it starts very effectively in this greyhound bus uh everything is dark and he 
I mean, it's a very traditional thing. I suppose he flicks a light uh, and there's a girl who goes to see who it is. And that's very effective. It's very spooky, the colour and the music. I agree with you about the music. It's great. Um, so I think it was really stylish. There was there were great cuts from scene to scene that I really enjoyed. Hmm. There were also... I don't know if this is history, but there were some lovely social things, which probably wouldn't have been interesting at the time, but were great going back to a film like that, uh, particularly lighting a fag at the petrol station. You know, we kind of wouldn't do that anymore. And there they are, you know, lighting up. So I really enjoyed the film, the quality of the film. I felt I was watching a good movie, well-made with good ideas about making it work as a film. And that's part of the reason why, you know, it was a, I enjoyed watching it. That's a, that's a very good point because I think that it tackles um, adaptation very well. I'll, I'll admit, obviously I haven't read the book, um, but you can see how it understands the medium it's working in and that it adjusts accordingly. It doesn't always work. So it has to add a narrator because it struggles with some aspects of the storytelling. But it's a very visual, very vivid and bold film. And it doesn't just try, even though it has kind of this documentary feel, um, it's using every trick in the book. And it's really alive and and vibrant. And those creative decisions, especially to use black and white, are conscious and deliberate. So, yeah. I, yeah. I'll mention a few more things on that, but they're kind of in the historical accuracy section. So I will pause so that we can listen to a message from our sponsors. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. And, uh, yeah, we're back. Uh, um, welcome you. back, everyone. I never thought we were going to get back there. I was caught in a time loop, but I just managed to get I back. I actually forgot that I had to reintroduce us right. and I was just like waiting for the, I was going to wait for like a minute just imagining this like sponsored message. Maybe you were imagining the advert. Maybe next time we should do an advert. Yeah. What would it be? Uh, come on down to David Shed. Listen to another fun podcast. Yes, indeed. That would be it. We'll advertise the podcast. Oh, can you, can you advertise your, I guess you could advertise your alternate podcasts as your like advertisement slot, but then you'd be paying yourself. Yeah. Anyway. True, weird. Okay, so on historical accuracy, and I'll try not to get too lost in all of this, and I'll admit that I obviously cannot have the best understanding of the book and what it laid out before and all the kind of years of research that went into into it. But obviously it was meticulously researched because I think Capote must have, I think he went and started investigating in 59 or just a few months after the murders. And then he was following the story the whole way through up until when they were caught and then the whole way through their trial and uh, time on death row. And he regularly exchanged letters with them. Uh, he spoke to the local people, the neighbors, family, friends. 
and had this kind of detailed understanding of everyone involved in the case to the point, like I said, that I think he got too close to Perry. And from what I've listened to, most people claim that this whole event had such an impact on his life that he kind of never really recovered from it. Um, An interesting part of the process uh, is that he trained himself to remember conversations without taking notes. And he supposedly could, could accurately recall conversations, even long ones, um, up to think something like 90% accuracy when he would write them down later on. Very impressive. But I do think that it it's already starting to indicate that there are going to be cracks in this story and that some of the truth is going to fall through or be deliberately lost. Can I just ask a question at that point? Mm-hmm. So yep. 90% accuracy, who did the measurement? I mean, you know... I think it was tests. I think it was like, I think there was a methodical process. Oh, really? There was. It wasn't just like me saying, I have to say, I remember that incident perfectly, officer. And it wasn't me that hit the back of the Porsche. Mm. It was a dragon. My assumption is that someone was recording conversations. Right. Okay. That he was, and he was listening to them and then he wouldn't use the recording and then he would write down what happened. And then they would compare with the recording. Okay, so it was scientifically done. Okay, fine. 90% then. I accept your... Carry on. There must have been, because I think he had to keep improving. No, I mean, it's a valid point. It's like, how do you you know this? But I was like, I'll just write this down. Yeah, that's right. So what I think when it comes to kind of the decision-making behind the film, um, and I'll explain why, is that um, Richard Brooks kind of seems to have a similar viewpoint to Capote, um, and he talks a lot about, and it's evident in the story, replicating the details of the events as kind of realistically as possible um, to honor the like integrity of the book. Um, so there was an excerpt that I took from a Criterion essay by Chris Fujiwara, um, which I'll share. Um, Capozzi chose Brooks to entrust with his hot property because as the writer explained, he was the only director who agreed with and was willing to risk my own concept of how the book should be transferred to film. Both Brooks and Capote wanted the film shot in black and white, which in 1967 was still a significant an alignment with documentary realism and insisted on casting unfamiliar actors as the killers. When Capote visited the film set, the first time he saw Robert Blake and Scott Wilson, um, whom Brooks had chosen to play Perry and Dick, he was struck by the mesmerizing reality of their resemblance to their real-life counterparts. When you add in the fact that this is me now talking, I guess, uh, when you add in the fact that the dialogue seems to come straight from the book onto the screen, um, including the like shocking level of profanity for the time period, there's some weird fact that this movie is like the first example of like five different swear words in like American cinema. Is that right? Okay, I didn't know. Yeah, interesting. And the fact that Compote uh, apparently was really impressed by the dramatic filming techniques. Uh, especially the fact that they light the murder sequence purely by torchlight. It's clear that these two men were working together and had like a really good relationship, which meant that the kind of the the author of the book is being channeled through the film, and it's not one of those cases where they kind of really diverge off and have different understandings. It's like they are kind of one and the same person to an extent. And then he just Brooks just builds and kind of pushes things in his own way slightly. Talking about the accuracy, uh, they used a lot of real locations 
um, in order to recreate the story. So they managed to get permission to film in the clutter house where the murders took place. And then they recreated them in the same rooms and the same ways that, that the real murders happened. They used the same gas station that they stopped at, the same hardware store where they purchased supplies, the same phone booth where Harry makes that call at the beginning, and ultimately it's the same gallows where they died. I think this is haunting. Hmm. I almost can't believe it. It's I'm kind of impressed right. that yeah. there's such a dedication to capturing it as it happened and not shying away from any of the kind of like brutality of it and the coldness of it. But it also feels incredibly invasive and I'm, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that you have to do that. Um, even. Well, I, I was going to make that point. There's, there's some things about historical accuracy that I think are really important and some things mm-hmm. I don't think are really important. I'm going to make myself unpopular to historians, but if the Roman centurion is wearing the wrong kind of helmet, I don't really care mm-hmm. if they went into a, petrol station which was not the right petrol station i don't really care i mean that's kind of not the point of historical accuracy it seems to Mm -hmm. me and that's that kind of you know very that kind of focus that you're describing i don't find that particularly important i think it's very important that the clutter family are faithfully represented and their world is faithfully represented whether it's in the same house or not don't really care yeah agreed i um i think it's more like i think it's interesting kind of in a grisly way and i guess that comes with that kind of any interest in true crime it's like oh okay this is i i'm kind of creeped out by this but i'm also intrigued yeah um but also i wouldn't have known if you'd have diff- used a different location um a couple of the other like weird accuracies on that line seven of the jurors that convicted them in the real case were in the film in as jurors and um, the horse, like the horse that she rides was her horse right? Um, in real life. And I'm like, why did you need? Yes. Why did you need to do that? It's just, you know, odd. And then thinking about inaccuracies, because obviously I think there's going to be a lot of accuracy. Um, so I can't go through all of it, but kind of that gives you some idea about what's going on. Mm. And then inaccuracies wise, while I'm sure there are a lot, I also don't, this is going to be rated fairly highly. It's not. Uh, it's not a travesty. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to figure out where the inaccuracies are going to come in and how clear that they're going to be because there's so much research. Um, so there are a number of scenes in the book, um, especially I think the ending, where there's this conversation between one of their supposed or real life girlfriends and a detective, I believe. Mm. Th- these are con- there's some concocted scenes. Capote is not lying. Uh, in case I haven't made this clear earlier. His intention with the book is to make a true crime novel that is a a merging of kind of true crime and nonfiction writing with fictional prose and everything that kind of the novel offers. Right. So it's this new form of writing. Um, So he deliberately will change things and add stuff in. And that's partly why he starts cutting between the lives of the Clutter family and the killers, creating... Uh, this narrative device that creates dramatic tension as we kind of build towards this eventuality that we know is coming. Um, And he fills in kind of the background for some of these characters, what they might be thinking, feeling, seeing. And yes, a lot of that must come from interviewing them directly, but I think a lot of it is 
supposed or assumed or fabricated um, for to make the novel better as an entertaining novel. And that happens in the film as well, and it will add a few of its own things. So it's just worth considering not everything you're seeing is true. Right. It's a bit picky, but the character of Jensen is... He, he was obviously not there because he's like a stand-in for Capote. Mm. Um, Capote, I'm not sure, would have inserted... I don't think he inserted himself into his own novel, but they kind of insert him into the film, but in this other character. Right. And then he's and then he kind of narrates the film, which which doesn't happen in, in the book. And and it's so that they can add in Brooks's kind of own views, like we said before, on capital punishment and... Um, his kind of own psychological interpretations of these men. Mm. I've read that. Yeah. Some of his psycho um, psychological analysis is, is kind of made up and he's just put his own um, understanding of what he thinks these men were like into the film. There are a bunch of like, there are a bunch of little facts and things that are like different as they happened that don't come across in the film. But I think the, on the whole, it's it's pretty good. For example, in the scene where they're in the car and they're coming back from Las Vegas and the police have Perry in custody and Hickok has just, he's just spilled his guts and kind of started to unravel the case. That's all true as far as we know that was happening. But when Perry confesses, at first he just confessed to killing the father and the son. And he said that Hickok had murdered the women in the house. Right. And I, th- I think that that story stuck for about two or three weeks. Then he later recounted his story and said that he felt bad for Hickok's family and he didn't want them to think of him as a murderer. So he would take the blame for all of it. I mean, these these men are unhinged and damaged. So I do think we're dealing a lot with how they're questionable narrators to an extent and they're having an influence on how the story is told back because the clutters did not live. Um, the only case we have apart from like physical evidence from the crime scene is what these men recount about what occurred. Right. Yeah. And I think what this told me is that we don't really know what took place. We can only gain bits of information from them. And even then they're changing their stories. They're also being coerced. They will have been coerced by police pressured. Um, oh, there's this, there's this writer and he's going to write this great story about me. What can I like? There are benefits to them to tell their story in certain ways. Um, So I just don't think we should assume naturally that what they're saying is true, but it's true to the, yes. I mean, I think it's a very good point. It is true to the historical record such as we know it, but like any historical record, we don't know it all. Yeah. Um, I just think the reason it's particularly interesting in this context, because I think the level the question about what is true and what is real is is far more. Let's say we were talking about the favorite. I know I'm not. I'm not thinking about that film in a way where I'm like, this definitely happened. Everything in this film took place word for word. I do think if you're filming in all of these actual locations and you're taking the dialogue straight from the book, which is supposedly like ninety percent accurate to exactly what everyone said, that. There is a sense that this is fact Mm. and like this is what happened. And I think then you have to be a little bit more um, critical of what you're observing. I take your point. I think you're probably right. I mean, funnily enough, actually, the film this reminded me of most Mm -hmm. was The Battle of Algiers. Mm. Interesting. 
but I mean, it was very it was it was black and white. It had the same sort of feel to it in a sense. It felt like it was trying to do similar things of tell a story, and there was a reason for telling the story, but it wasn't going to over sensationalize it. Yeah. Do I have any last points? Um, yeah, I guess really just to kind of sum up what I was saying is that this film has a lot of subjective um, shots of the killers and what they might have seen, felt, or recalled. Very effective, and it, it helps create the messaging that we've kind of been talking about up until now. But in terms of kind of what is true, what is accurate, whether Perry had a, suddenly saw his father as the killer on the gallows, it, no idea. Yeah. That's that's a narrative thing that a flourish that's added in. Whether but you kind of getting these, you kind of realize yeah. that when you're watching the film, don't you? There was no way they could have known this, so you kind of assume, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, actually, you are correct. It would be wrong of me to assume that anyone who like watches the film or reads the book, um, it just naturally assumes everything they're being told mm. is is completely true. Um, but yeah, I think my point just is like in terms of. I think your point is absolutely right. I mean, I think that's just one very specific situation where I think everybody could would realise this one isn't true. You know, there are probably lots of other examples where we don't know that it's true, like your other one about Perry spilling his guts. Yes. Maybe we've already answered this, but mm-hmm. just to kind of sum up this episode and get to, I guess, the main point, who do you think owns history? And has this film or this topic adjusted your answer from the previous episode? I think it's an impossible question. That's why I keep asking it, because there are different types of history. I think Mm. maybe what's important is, in a sense, what you're pointing to here is that we understand what each bit of history role is. So if we are talking about the story of a, you know, a, some troubadour singing a story about the exploits of his lord or whatever back in a medieval hall, then, and the modern equivalent of that, like Braveheart, we have to know that this isn't going to be right, this is playing a role. It's not true. It is deeply inaccurate, but it is with we're all sharing in it because we want to have that feeling. You know, we want to feel part of something bigger and that is legitimate. It seems to me, but we have to, I think, recognize that there is a lodestone where people are trying to establish the truth to understand and explain rather than emotionalize and judge. And that is academic history. And that needs to be, to have a certain status because people are trying as hard as they can to be objective and that has enormous value. But I think it is quite wrong to say to everybody the only history you can enjoy is complete, academic, totally objective. You just have to realise what you're doing in each situation. And I think people know fundamentally. I mean, I think the, the, the edges do get blurred. And it can be destructive. I mean, like all the, the nationalism thing, there is, it's very difficult there because in a sense, it's, it's very important to feel part of a national story. I think that's critical. Patriotism with a small P, I think, is very valuable in building social cohesion. But nationalism is hideous. 
Anna has many deaths at its feet. So there's a, mm-hmm. it's a very hard balance. Yeah, I think, interestingly, when I started looking at this episode, I assumed that I was going to critique Capote more for this like potentially false sense of authenticity. Um, my argument being that everyone who's read the book and watched this film, that is the version of the story. Any other facts that people uh, disagree with or that have like fallen by the wayside or they just ignored, we probably will never know about. So this is our historical text for what happened. And this is how we will always remember it. But the more that we've talked through the episode, the more that I have, yes, come to think that actually maybe they did the best job that they could possibly do. And they maintained their integrity and they were able to kind of balance um, the original kind of um, historical fact with what they ultimately wanted to achieve, which was creating entertainment and spreading like awareness and key messages and themes that they wanted to like analyze and present to other people. I mean, we have, we have to accept that this, this silly thing where people say, Oh, they're trying to rewrite history that you get in the press and so on is twaddle because even academic historians are constantly rewriting and reevaluating history. There's a, there is no one truth. All that you need to value about academic history is that they are making a sincere effort and doing everything they can to get as close as possible. So I guess my question is, did you think this film was sincere? Yes. Always. Good. Yeah. Okay. Would you recommend it? I kind of would. I mean, there is one thing I need to preface this with. You were going to ask me how much I know about Truman Capote, and I only mm. know two things about Truman Capote. Is it his first and last name? Well, actually, three things. Okay. Uh, the first thing is that Gore Vidal said about him when he died that his death was, and I quote, a good career move, which mm. is both incredibly mean and incredibly funny, which I guess is what Gore Vidal was all about. You you love Gore Vidal quotes. I just I... I... I think that's the only quote I know, isn't it? No, you've definitely told me at least one or two others, I swear. He's a very funny, slightly nasty man. And the other thing is that he had breakfast at Tiffany's, didn't he? Do you? Well, he wrote that, but I I guess as a joke, I'm like, yeah. He didn't have croissant at Tiffany's. I I don't know. I don't think that's possible. No. Okay. So that's all I know about Truman Capote. So um, I think the film, I would give it... It's a bit unworthy. In terms of quality trying to do something, I could probably give it a seven. In terms of seeing it, I'd probably give it a five. Um, oh, very, very interesting. I I would recommend somebody to go and see it. I thought it was interesting, but I would go and see it as a historical record rather than to go and have a good time. So, yes. I would rate it higher mm-hmm. because I think that it's I think it's brilliantly crafted. And like it, it leaves you with things to actually like um, think about and ponder. And I think its importance in cinema history and American cinema history, I think, from what I can gather, that is quite real and important. So I guess, I guess I would. I'm torn between a seven and an eight, but I know that I'm slightly rating it higher than I actually enjoyed it because of this worthiness that we've talked about. But I'm pleased that I watched it. I thought it was a good. Yeah, good I'm exercise. pleased I watched it. I'm probably being harsh, and I don't 
your opinion is worth more in this than mine because you understand much more about the the filmography. So I mean, I'm perfectly happy with a, a seven. Um, for historical accuracy, I, th- I was just again, it's arbitrary, but I was going to say like an eight, mm-hmm. an eight, or even a nine because it's kind of being like picky. Um, but I think we just know you can't actually know all of it, so it's maybe doing the best that it can. I mean, that sounds perfectly fair to me. In a way, it's a bit like trying to rate Master and Commander for historical accuracy in the sense, well, it isn't actually, but there's a, the one sort of similarity is that for Master and Commander, the environment is beautifully delineated, mm. the story is tripe. But, you know, you've got to admire it for how it represents the world so faithfully what it can do it does very faithfully yeah um so that's it i think excellent well thank you very much and we have not yet thought of what we're going to do for the next episode but there will be a next episode oh yes unless there is some major environmental catastrophe uh if you're already angry that i picked this film please write in and let us know get angry with wolf i mean otherwise you're going to be doing zodiac all over again you know Thank you very much. Thank you very much, everyone. Have fun. Bye. Right then, I've inserted this a little later because Wolf and I do now know what films we're going to be doing. Next week, we are returning to the Indian continent for a film called Lagan, which is a rousing 2001 film about a group of villagers challenged to a game of cricket by the no-doubt arrogant English army officers. There is music. There is sports drama. There is rousingness aplenty. To watch it, you can find it on YouTube with the English subtitles or you can buy it on DVD. And then, the episode after that, well, look, we put it off too long. We are going to meet Mr Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North. Much hilarity ensues. Oh, no, it doesn't actually. He becomes a gladiator, actually. That's available literally everywhere. Keep your eyes open or you'll fall over it. You will be entertained. See you all then. Are you not entertained? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.